In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Modern changes in lifestyle are contributing to this epidemic of depression. We know that our mental and physical well-being are related, but why do we approach them as if they are not? On today's podcast, we discuss the factors that may be contributing to our poor mental health. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McFillin. A lot of the poor mental health care that currently exists in the United States, and I think we just got out of a meeting, Sean, mm-hmm. where I always feel down after those meetings. <laughs> Why is that? Because we have these conversations about what's going on around us in the region, whether it's the pushing teens and young adults into hospitalizations based on checklists, or just systemic problems overall. So I always feel down coming out of those meetings. Don't let that get you down. That's just the business. <laughs> it is the business. <laughs> and you know, this is the reason why we have this podcast is we could at least bring these ideas to the American public and the global public, actually. You know, so much of this is rooted in some of these ideas of chemical imbalance and brain disorders at the root of why someone might be struggling with their mental health. This goes back to the 70s and 80s when psychiatry was dominated by the desire to understand mental illness in primarily biological terms. Uh, from brain structure to neurochemistry and genetics, these ideas, they've fueled a drug industry that's promoted false ideas that the emotional well-being is rooted in brain chemistry. And thus the pharmaceutical industry has created a multi-billion dollar industry to create drugs to try to correct the supposed brain abnormalities. The most recent figures in the United States, this is collected between April and May 2022 by the National Center for Health Statistics, approximately 23% of adults taking prescription medication for their mental health. And the vast majority of these people that are taking these prescriptions, primarily SSRIs, believe that they work by increasing the availability of serotonin and correcting abnormally low levels of serotonin responsible for depression. We should be questioning this legitimacy we have on this podcast since it's such unsubstantiated ideas that are driving the way that people view their health. I thought we closed the door on that belief. Came out this past summer, the chemical imbalance Well, you would hope that research drives practice and uh, you certainly go into any helping field trying to use the best available evidence to to drive practice. And right now I am absolutely convinced, especially within our medical settings, that what has become the standard of care, what doctors are told is best available evidence, is corrupted information by men major medical organizations in the United States. And since depression is certainly not new, 
um, its prevalence throughout history is is kind of unknown, right? The the affliction of sorrow, fright, despondency exhibits remarkable historical continuity from ancient to modern times to current times. Part of being human is to go through emotional pain and suffering. However, it's very difficult for us to determine whether there is a change in this. Are there changing rates over millennia and centuries? We need more information. However, I did a little bit of a deep dive, tried to look at things historically the best that I could. Some interesting things I came up with. A meta-analysis of the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, best known as the MMPI, mm-hmm. well-known uh, psychometric test that's administered. Uh, the, a meta-analysis of data that was provided to American college and high school students found that young adults were six to eight times more likely to meet the cutoff uh, for a psychopathological score on the clinical depression scare scale in 2007 compared to peers in 1938. Six to eight times more likely. Okay. In youth, depression increased 52%. So the diagnosis of it increased 52% from 2005 to 2017. That's a jump from eight. 0.7% of youth to 13.2% of youth. Mm. And it rose 63% in young adults, ages 18 to 25, from 2009, which it was 8.1%, to 2017, which was 13.2%. If we look at other statistics, from February to March 1987, there were 16,200 psychiatrically disabled youth under the age of 18 receiving Social Security benefits. 20 years later, 561,569 youth. It's a 50% increase. Actually, that's more than a 50% increase. I'm sorry about that. You're going from 16,200 psychiatrically disabled youth to 561,569. We'll just call that very significant. (laughs) Very, very (laughs) significant. And you want to know the next jump? 2020 totaled 813,550 American youth disabled receiving SSI benefits. Disabled. Psychiatric disabled, psychiatrically disabled. We saw psychiatric-related emergency room visits increase 59% between the years 1995 to 1991. And it continues to grow. Mm -hmm. But that was the big jump, mid-90s. Does it say why? It doesn't say why. uh, But we can also try to deduce... What happened in 1996? Advertising pharmaceuticals on uh, national television here in the United States. Direct to direct cons- to consumer. Yeah. Yep. And I had a conversation this morning with our attorney at the practice. Oh. And he mentioned that everything okay. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to. Try, this is a future podcast where we talk about parent rights in the mental health system. Okay. But one of the things he mentioned is how um, everything changed in 1996 mm-hmm. statistically. 
direct to consumer advertising. You now have patients going to doctors asking for drugs. Yeah, you see it on uh, on everything. Every single pharmaceutical. Ask your doctor about three syllable word. Yeah. <laughs> They're all three syllable words. So more evidence that the mental well-being is declining mm-hmm. generationally. Anxiety in children and college students has increased almost one standard deviation from the 1950s to the 1990s with a cohort effect of increased lifetime risk in most countries surveyed. The apparent rise in depression has been attributed, one, to changes in the diagnostic criteria. It's much easier to get that label of depression. That's one way to do it. And they fail to account for the context of the symptoms, which has led for the misclassification of normal responses of sadness or other physical ailments as a mental disorder. And this is one of my primary concerns is with the modern mental health industrial complex, and that's how I'll call it, the allopathic medical establishment and its alliance with the pharmaceutical companies has manufactured a disease. Now, this does not deny that people are struggling with their mental health and have, and being human is very, very difficult. It's just the modern conceptualization is designed to sell drugs, and it fails to target the actual real problems that, are peop- that people are experiencing that are contributing to the way that they are feeling. And that is, that is my discussion point for today, Sean, is to talk about how mental health-related problems, specifically depression and anxiety, are problems of modern living. And the way that the system functions, it does not allow to actually target the factors that are influencing it. And I think there's a better way. I know there's a better way than the way that we're currently doing it. And so the challenge today is to consider what is modern living? And is there a genetic and evolutionary mismatch between who we are designed to be in the lives that we actually currently live that is going to lead us to be physically and mentally unwell. Hmm. So you're talking about this, I'm just going to call it a convenience culture. Well, you started off this podcast saying that pain and suffering, you're supposed to experience that in your lifetime as a human. Yeah. Well, it leads to growth. Mm-hmm. Right, it's there's no way you can get through this life without experiencing pain and suffering. Like there's there's no way you, you you're going to experience loss. There's going to be trials and tribulations, you know. And just we things we've talked about in the past about doing hard things, difficult things. You talk about seventy five hard, seventy five hard. There we got, we got to put that there. on the street. <laughs> <laughs> like, so, the, there are there are actual mental benefits from you know challenging ourselves, mm-hmm. and I I honestly personally believe that. You know, everything that we experience is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to grow and live better and to learn. And our emotional pain is also a cue or potentially a gift to say, hey, things, things are not going well for you. You need to reconsider the way that you're approaching your life. This is an opportunity for you to overcome something. We don't treat mental health currently in that way. We don't see it as opportunities where... We're talking about it as a disease, but I digress. I think for today, let's talk about what are some of the real problems that get mislabeled 
as mental health problems, that a frontline intervention should be provided. Like you have to be able to identify how that person is living and make changes there. I think everybody knows who listens to this podcast how I feel about the mental health system. Every identifiable statistics will, will say that in all likelihood, you know, you're going to worsen by entering into the system. And what do we mean by the system? It's drugs and therapy. And it is pushing people in directions to think about their own purpose and their own quality of life in ways that don't fit actual science. Because if you're going to your doctor and your doctor doesn't care about your lifestyle, the food that you're eating, the relationships that you have, you're not going to a doctor. You're going to a drug dealer. There's no doubt about that. Because eight-minute primary care appointments and a prescription is not health care. Let's start with the obesity ep- epidemic as it exists. Yeah. Um, Sean, your thoughts on how we got here. So uh, why are we such an obese country, the United States? Well, here in the United States, we are definitely a, a nation that has evolved over the last 150 years from agriculture to industrialization to coming out of World War II, uh, mass producing food. And I use that word, a culture of convenience. I think we've really evolved in that direction. We've moved away from the things that are, are truly important. Yeah, no doubt. I think you see as, as there's a rise in metabolic dysfunction and obesity, you know, type 2 diabetes and other conditions, heart disease and obesity, it shouldn't surprise anyone that we see a, a nice correlation with the rise in depression and anxiety. Because obesity and the mechanisms impacting mood impact metabolic disease. Metabolic disease is a primary driving factor of mental illness. You know, we've talked about this on, on the podcast previously. Dr. Christopher Palmer has a great book out right now. Mm-hmm. We were one of the first to interview him before that book went out. Um, what's the name of that book? Uh, I'll look it up. It's Brain uh, something Brain. Uh, brain Energy. Brain, brain Energy. energy. Yeah. yeah, there we go. Dr. Christopher Palmer. Listen, uh, mild to severe chronic inflammation. If, you ha- if you're obese, you are sick. But it also comes with other psychosocial aspects. To not feel good in your own body physically also certainly has its social components here with social anxiety, poor body image, social comparison. And then you're going to prescribe a drug that is proven to increase metabolic illness and potential weight gain, but even imp- impact other things that are important, like sleep. It's, the, it's such stupidity. Yeah, I think we've lost common sense. Because if, you, if, you are, if you're coming into mental health treatment and obesity is primarily one of the major health concerns, you're not doing anybody any favors by ignoring it. Because the primary intervention should be a health intervention, a lifestyle intervention around food and activity. But we've become so weak in this country that we're afraid to even identify that clearly as a health risk. And we're talking about things. We're trying to actually promote obesity in the United States. In advertising, in your field, we are talking about you know bodies at any size. Well, we over the last ten years, I'd say fat shaming became a big part of our culture. Something that you could not do. But as a therapist, isn't that something that you don't even need to test for if somebody comes in? 
you can almost clearly identify somebody that is borderline obese and their diet may be affecting their overall health. Yeah, unfortunately, it's close to 60% of the United States, so it's a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's not fat shaming. When you're in the healthcare field, being able to care about someone's life and the manner in which they move their body, take care of their health, and, t- and giving them clear health-related information, it's not only information because when you're a psychologist or you're a behaviorist like, like I am, I'm interested in those things. I care about how you move your body. I care about what you put into your body. Because it is, it's disingenuous for me to tell you that you're going to feel better without making those changes. I think uh, there's a character in Austin Powers' movie. His name was Fat Bastard. And he said it best. <laughs> he said, I'm fat. <laughs> I eat because I'm fat. Or no, I'm, I'm, I eat because I'm sad. I'm sad because I eat. Yeah, it is that, kind of, it is that connection. He's a stoic. <laughs> <laughs> And I do want to provide some like practical strategies before you ever go to your local therapist or tell your doctor you're depressed. There are some things that you can do. We had a great podcast on food and mood, and I refer everybody to that. But I think the most important thing is this Western diet of processed food where everything is cooked and marinated in seed oils, refined vegetable oils. Remember what those are? Soybean oil, corn oil, cottonseed oil, sunflower oil, peanut oil, sesame oil, rice bran oil. If you're going out to eat, in all likelihood, the food is cooked in those oils. Even the people that eat low-fat foods, they're loaded with sugars, right? I mean, uh, skim milk, all all that stuff. People think they're doing the right thing, but often they're not Mm -hmm. because of the amount of sugars. Yeah. And, and what happens when there's an, an imbalance of omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids? Because that's what it creates. It mm-hmm. creates mood imbalances. Physical and mental health problems. People who ate a pre-industrial diet had an omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of about 4 to 1. Now it's reversed. No, wait. I'm wrong. People who ate a pre-industrial diet had an omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of about 4 to 1 to to one to four most falling somewhere in between the ratio today 16 to one much higher yeah it depends on which way you're looking at the ratio yeah sorry you know what's associated with um with these high omega-6 fatty acids obesity cancer heart disease hyperactivity depression anxiety violence and agitation it's literally poisonous it is poisonous, toxic to the human body. So you get any of your protein bars or your packaged goods or your eating out or your salad dressing, you are ingesting poison. And we see it in a rise in cancer and heart disease and obesity and depression, anxiety and ADHD. And you know what that means for the pharmaceutical companies? It means money. Money. They want you sick. If you are sick, you are dependent on their product. And it's great for the, for the big food companies in the United States. So first of all, please, please look where these seed oils and refined vegetable oils are part of your diet. 
nutrient deficiencies, right? Mm-hmm. Other things that are going to influence how you feel are nutrient deficiencies that exist here in the United States. Sean, what's the uh, what's the most nutrient dense superfood on the planet? Algae. <laughs> you would say that. <laughs> no, you, it's, it's probably liver. <laughs> if, if you could eat one food, blue algae, <laughs> one food that is a superfood. If I could eat it, nope. I'm telling my audience here. <laughs> I would. I would eat um, grass-fed organ meat and livers. I think the easiest one to do, Oof. right? And I, I'm trying to even push some clients to to take it because I think it is, it will transform their health as long as they're cutting out some of the other things. Can you imagine getting fifty three thousand four hundred IU's of vitamin A? Compare beef liver to kale, blueberries, other things where where it's promoted, mm-hmm. and it's it's ridiculous. It's it is the most nutrient dense food. You got to get beef liver in your diet. Yeah, but blueberries just taste a lot better. I will say there are some cultures that have learned how to cook organ meat in a flavorful way. True. Yeah, I think I think we adapt. I think we adapt to what's available. Like, so when I switch primarily over to a lot of carnivore-based diet, um, you know, I'm always craving it, and you feel better. But I want people to think about these nutrient de- deficiencies. One of the things that is so important, and let's, let's imagine that you're, you're, you're vitamin D deficient, for example, mm-hmm. or magnesium deficient. Like 50% of Americans are, are magnesium deficient, and that impacts their ability to metabolize vitamin D. Yep. And so what do we know? What's, what's associated with anxiety and depression? Low vitamin D, low magnesium. Are we going into our healthcare centers and, and are we getting tested for that? Are we evaluating the diets? Are we trying to get it from whole food instead of more pills? What's my point here? My point here is that you go into the system and you just talk about your, your emotional state. You're going to be treated with a pill a bullshit diagnosis, and you are not going to be getting the actual interventions that are needed to change your life. We have a sedentary lifestyle. The general population, exercise definitely correlates with a reduced risk of depression and sedentary behavior with a higher risk. Exercise appears to be the most effective. If if not the most effective, one of the most effective interventions that somebody can do for depression. Aerobic exercise has been shown to be as effective as a treatment as any other without any relapse rate. When people without work the out, same relapse when, rate. When people work out, often they use like uh, how many calories you've burned. What do you think you burn calories wise in a in a given day. Do you have any idea? I would have no clue because I don't think about anything through the terms of a calorie. But people were very, very busy back in the day in terms of, you know, an agricultural society, hunters, gatherers, you're constantly moving, you're outside, you're walking, you're chasing things down. And now we're sitting in an office. Yeah. I I, I wear one of these, you know, fitness watches. Mm -hmm. I won't give the sponsor, uh, you know, I won't name drop, but um, I probably... I'm going to say I burn maybe about a third of the calories that somebody 
back in the day used to do because of this this lifestyle of you know sitting at a desk working and and not being fully active so it's not only that but also think about your exposure to artificial light versus natural light yeah yeah current light exposure patterns in modern society have been blamed for widespread circadian dysfunction in the general population and this these are profound changes in sleep patterns during the past century which many believe further contributes to an increased risk of depression via altered circadian rhythms the national sleep foundation recommends seven to nine hours of sleep per night the american adult slept about eight hours in 1960 now it is six hours and 40 minutes on the weekends and seven hours and seven minutes on the weekends a weekday is six hours and 40 40 minutes that's me i'm six hours and 30 40 minutes sleep deprived but i maybe i just i naturally wake up yeah but what they're saying is it it could be because of altered circadian rhythms from not enough exposure to well it could be a couple things yeah exposure to natural light less activity as well definitely yeah um and potential screen time blue red blue light exposure yeah i tried to stay off the phone before i you know throughout the day your computer definitely throughout the day yep one third of the u.s population exhibits at least one symptom of insomnia with six percent meeting full criteria and less sleep is associated with um poor physical health including the development of obesity in children and and adolescents acute sleep deprivation decreases glucose tolerance and causes endocrine dysfunction similar to that seen in obesity related diseases so the reduced amount or quality of sleep um, are not only cardinal symptoms but also predictors of depression and uh Perspective studies reveal that insomnia doubles the risk of developing depression. So interventions solely directed toward treating insomnia could really alleviate depression symptoms. So here we are. Before we do anything and, and assume it to be psychological or you know, requires a some form of a pharmaceutical to target serotonin that's not disrupted how about let's get back to some common sense we're talking about we're talking about the food we're putting in our body we're talking about our movement and we're talking about sleep and i question that when you sit down for a full mental health assessment with a therapist how often or if that's actually being evaluated my guess is no probably not and we know that it's not happening in our primary care centers and if and if it is it's certainly just be you know being provided lip service i remember after i uh, caught covid so that would have been what around christmas time of 21 um touch and go there for a while yeah i was in bad, i was in bad shape but anyway my, my sleep got dis- did we bring the priest in um my my sleep got disrupted so that entire month of like january i was i was struggling for a while and we recorded that podcast episode one of our earliest ones um how to improve your sleep uh and there were some interventions that you recommended in there i went back and listened to that episode when my sleep was disrupted and i did what you had said which is you know get your butt up early 
go for a morning walk while the sun's rising, uh, look at the sun, <laughs> get that morning light. So I, for it was a freezing cold winter last year. I remember being out there in 14 degrees, you know, bundled up and walking up the hill and around the block just so I can get some morning light and, and my sleep improved. No doubt. It is so, so important that, uh, especially in the winter months, geez, it is so tough here in the winter months. Trying to get some morning sun exposure is so critical on so many levels. I, I didn't do it yesterday. I was lazy yesterday. You're so, allowed a lazy day every once in a while. That's what I was telling myself. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I gave myself permission. You had a me day? <laughs> <laughs> gave myself permission to just relax, you know? Yeah. Took a nap. Wrestling just drains me physically you were you weren't weekend. actually wrestling you were sitting there watching i mean watching son my son wrestling <laughs> let's be <laughs> vicariously <laughs> it's exhausting so yeah just took a, a a day to relax and didn't didn't even go outside i don't think congratulations shane making it to states super proud of you way to battle back he doesn't listen to this actually yes he does he texts me all the time He's like, why don't you argue more with your dad, with my dad? Does he say that? <laughs> no, he doesn't. Uh, yeah. There's no way he's listening to this. I was looking at our demographics. He doesn't fit <laughs> That's my Shane voice, by the way. You've got your voices for me. I've got your son's <laughs> voice. <laughs> so back. Uh, so we got light and sleep, and we talked about sedentary lifestyle, food, and social media and screen time. Mm. I mean, a lot of this is also going to come down to, you know, as hunters and gatherers, we were... We grew up, you know, or we evolved within tribes. It was a really socially connected group. Um, and the more that we see ourselves as socially disconnected and then living through screens is where we're going to see an increase of these depression and anxiety symptoms. And I do believe that the mental well-being has suffered greatly based on I think the way that we're living in our in our modern lives, people aren't happier living through Facebook or, uh, you know, scrolling all the time and being disconnected with the head in the screen. And obviously, every uh, other kind of measure of mental well-being begins to you know decrease living living this way. And so it, it makes sense for us to get back to common sense approaches as frontline treatments. The idea that the American Academy of Pediatrics is offering an SSRI Prozac as a frontline intervention for a teen who's talking about their mood is criminally negligent. You know, I want all the listeners to understand that. This is a corrupted organization. And our in our healthcare centers, we have doctors making decisions based on protocols or guidelines established by major medical organizations, assuming that these major medical organizations are not political or motivated financially. They are. And so there is nothing that's going to suggest that an antidepressant for a 14-year-old presenting for the first time with low mood, that the frontline intervention should be a toxic pharmaceutical impacting brain chemistry for a developing brain that two and a half to four times increases the likelihood of a suicide event has a black box warning that's supposed to be a frontline intervention think about it common sense we have given way too much power to the medical authority in the united states and some of the personalities that are making decisions 
for the health of our children. They believe that they, since they're a physician, they have to know it all. Many of them are just following guidelines, and they're afraid to act outside those guidelines for liability reasons. And we have to get into those details about why have we, why has the pendulum swung for such invasive medical procedures for what can be common sense lifestyle changes? It used to be that food was medicine, plants were medicine. You know, now it's now it's uh, pharmaceuticals are, are are medicine. And what are the results? Well, our mental, physical well-being are completely destroyed. Yes, there's industries that are being developed around it. The mental health industry being one of them, big. Big money. I must get some email or call at least once a month with inquiries about selling our practice. I don't know what is going out there, going on out there in the general business world about trying to buy up mental health. A huge business right now. It is. Um, I still get emails too from you know through LinkedIn. There's they find they buy your email address basically, and they cold call you, see if they can get you to bite. But, you know, anytime there's big money like this, um, but the, the shift um, the shift that's moving over towards therapy is somewhat encouraging, but the model that exists um, from a national perspective is an integrative approach that includes therapy and pharmaceutical treatments. It, which yeah, it's is, just another front to sell drugs. It, it is. Um, I can see it. And I can only, I'd see it just because now I'm familiar with what's happening behind the scenes. And, you know, in terms of establishing a business, if you can get people in the door and then refer them to yourself, then boom, that's a, it's a great revenue opportunity. Yeah, I think for our listening audience out there, is there has to be a movement to take back our health. I, there, are so many, there are so many parents of teens that are just scared to defy the medical recommendation because of fear that they'd be doing something wrong and or the trust in their doctors i think that's definitely part of it but you're you're almost kind of brought up to just trust the expert and so if a medical like an authority bias yeah if the medical professional is telling you you should do something even even if you disagree with it like for example uh you know a, a teen has had multiple different psychiatric drugs and had a poor response. Mm -hmm. You'll still have the poorest of physicians continue to deny the harm and think that they're just going to find another drug. If you didn't, if this one doesn't work, let's try this one or let's try that one. Sometimes you're going to have teens who are on like two and three different psychiatric drugs and with a worsening condition. And the parents, although common sense and their gut tells them that they're really, really concerned and scared they're afraid to say no to the psychiatrist who you know might say something to the fact like listen this is the this is the best available treatments that we have denying these treatments or like refusing to do these treatments would make you um negligent you know mm -hmm. as a as a parent and there, i mean there's fear i can't believe we've gotten to this point but there are so many doctors who are just brainwashed by their training and the drug-based system, allopathic, you know, medical doctors for the most part, and they actually believe that these drugs are, are some life are life-saving, almost like it's a, akin to insulin for diabetes, and it and it's so insane, you know. It, it's why we've had the forcing of the COVID vaccine without safety and efficacy. 
It's just a blind trust in the pharmaceutical recommendations as some sort of advancement in healthcare. Yet as a society, we, we continue to get more sick. Western society continues to become more ill and more ill. We don't have a lot of data. I think for the first time, we're seeing the life expectancy decrease. Because of all, all these obesity, primarily obesity, right? Diet. Well, one might argue it's also the uh, substance abuse oh, yeah. and suicide. Yeah. So deaths by despair, which I put into the same bucket. When you talk about health, um, deaths by despair, you know, I don't separate physical and mental well-being. Mm-hmm. You know, when you feel bad physically and uh, you feel bad medically, whether it's toxins or food or culture, you know, we're starting to see a decrease in life expectancy because of deaths by despair. But the other thing is, what type of quality of life is it? If you're, you know, you're, you're at 60, you have cardiac disease, you've got type 2 diabetes, and you're obese, and you're taking pharmaceuticals as band-aids to try to extend your life for maybe another 5 to 10 years? Yeah. Come on, that's not health care. No. So that's like, when we think about it from a mental health perspective, to me, the future has to be creating true integrated health integrated health around getting the information and what are antidepressant foods talking about information using the research around gut microbiome and maximizing nutrients and metabolic health and creating environments around where yoga and meditation and stress management are, are, are really integrated into a form of good mental health care. It's not just sitting there with talk time, or old psychodynamic ideas of just going back to your childhood and that's going to account for your, you know, your mental distress. It's really about creating a life of health and purpose. And that's going to have to involve community and connection. You know, I've always thought that we could do something where we can really make change. Like we're Center for Integrated Behavioral Health. And right now that's a, that's a term. Although I think we're doing great individual work and some trainings and dialectical behavior therapy. I'd love to be able to get, get this practice integrated with sauna, you know, mm. cold therapies, hot therapies, nu- uh, nutrition therapies, uh, meditation, yoga. That's my dream. Yeah, I'm always the bummer with that because I tell you, all right, if, what's the business behind it, right? And I think that's why a lot of those places just don't exist right now because you need you need the the population to, to be consistent with it, right? It's why it's why health gyms are such a good business is because people sign up for it and then they don't show up. Well, at some point, the insurance model in the United States has to change. If you're in if you're in the insurance business out there, the health insurance, you're paying for interventions that make people more sick. Do you understand that? It is a sick care system. Well, that's the good thing with data. I do believe that with enough data, they'll start to analyze and recognize where they've gone wrong. And there'll be a shift. It's going to take time because they're going to have to work through all the systems that they've put in place that are getting in the way of them making change because there could be a financial disincentive to do so up front but in the long term if it leads to quality health and decreased medical expenses someone's going to push for it and whoever does so will be the one who rises to the top i think in life you have to be rewarded for positive outcomes 
Like this field, you should be rewarded for positive health-based It doesn't outcome. though. It doesn't exist. That's what's so frustrating to me is there's a health insurance model. As a therapist, I can talk to somebody who's unhappy in their relationship and get paid the same amount as you seeing somebody who has been harmed by the system, suicidal, severely traumatized, and requires a more hands-on and structured approach to therapy. You get paid the same amount as me sitting down having coffee talk about a poor marriage. Doesn't make sense to me. The medical system wouldn't be set up that way. It's the definition of insanity. Yeah, but it is what it is. Yeah, but it's got to change. It's going to bankrupt itself. Or you're just going to continue to lose quality therapists. They'll go into something else or just no longer accept insurance. <laughs> and Which does happen. Unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I think we made a good case. <laughs> <laughs> well, I digress. For there's so much about the, uh, you know, about our modern society that is influencing manufactured diseases of depression and anxiety um you can see why we walk out of some of these meetings and why i feel down i'm going to feel down after this podcast as well mm-hmm. <laughs> but we do offer solutions we do believe the, the the solution for this is really to take to take care of your health and be aware of all the factors that are influencing feeling unwell mm-hmm. there is so much more that we could be could be doing and um you know, the Radically Genuine podcast is dedicated to getting some of that information out there. I think we've been doing a really good job of that. Um, one final thing before we close. Love hearing from our, our listeners. Been getting a lot of emails lately. That's what's, the, what's the email address for the podcast? Radgenpod at gmail.com. Just look in the show summary. There's a, a direct link right there. Just click on it. Yeah. If you have thoughts or ideas about future podcasts, um, comments. We'd love to hear from you and have been getting a lot of emails recently. We have to go back to a you ask, you answer. Those are always a, a good one because people have questions. Yeah. yeah, And we've been really, really busy. If I haven't gotten back to you and you have emailed, I, I do apologize. We'll try to do that as much as we can, but things have really gotten gotten busy. We are now in the top two and a half percent of global downloads. Woo-hoo. And so that was a nice, nice jump. What does that mean? It, it means we're progressing it means it means we're growing right yeah. um ultimately when we get the message out here we're talking about grassroots kind of discussions and we want to have guests who are stepping outside the allopathic medical establishment of the western world i know there's doctors out there i know you're listening i know there's people out there who know what we're talking about but you're stuck in a system we need to get you on this podcast to talk more we need to gather solutions Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.